Hello, everyone, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Alan Ferguson. I'm associate editor with Safety and Health. With me, as always, are fellow associate editors, Barry Bettino and Kevin Drewley. Fellows, uh, say hello to the nice folks out there. Hi, everybody. Hello, everyone. Once again, we're coming to you from our respective homes as the National Safety Council's employees are continuing to work remotely. Wherever you happen to be listening today, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate it. We also hope everyone out there is continuing to stay safe and healthy during this time, especially those who return to an office or other facility. As always, we want to thank the safety pros out there who are doing all they can to keep our workers healthy and living their fullest lives, as our president and CEO, Lorraine Martin, likes to say. And once again, a sincere thank you for all of your extra efforts during the COVID-19 pandemic. To keep up on the latest COVID-19 and other news from around the safety world, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com for daily updates. For us, this is episode lucky number seven of On the Safe Side, so we got that going for us, which is nice. And on this episode, we'll do a deep dive into one of our stories from the September issue of Safety and Health. We'll also talk about COVID-19's impact on mental health for workers and employers as part of our five questions with. Of course, stay tuned for our pop quiz. This one is delicious. Is everybody ready? Let's go. Each and every month here at On the Safe Side, we take a closer look at a story from the pages of Safety and Health magazine, which we call our deep dive segment. And this month, Kevin has put together a story that every one of us can relate to, and the topic is, well, stories. As Kevin will tell us, and you can read in our September print issue or see online, whatever your preference might be, there's a great power in a story. And with every story, there's a chance to make a lasting impression on your workers, your colleagues, and your managers. So Kevin, I'm ready to take a leap into the pool. Please take us on the latest deep dive, will you? Certainly. Uh, and first, I thank you, Barry Botino, for that fine introduction. It's much appreciated, and it really does touch upon a key element of this, I guess you call it a, a story about stories, so to speak. Um, really, there's no doubt that each of us and, and all of our listeners can recall relating to a good story in the past. You know, maybe it was a personal parallel with the focus of the story or the manner in which the story was told, or maybe even a memorable ending. Whatever the case, though, something in that story resonated and that allowed us to form a connection with it and the storyteller. And really, that's a huge part of why we remember those stories today. In safety, as you said, effective stories can have the power to inspire or create positive change in someone's work habits and behaviors. Um, As you'll see or have seen in the September issue of the magazine, about a half dozen experts, including EHS managers, motivational safety speakers, safety consultants, and even communications consultants, shared their insight both about why stories are important in the industry and what you should do to keep in mind in order to tell a good one. Of course, by good one, I don't mean a whopper or something with a fantastic surprise twist that O. Henry might have come up with something you know, fictitious, but a story, again, that is going to radiate with the listener and allow them to form that vital connection that might serve as a building block for that, that self-improvement or positive change that we mentioned. So a good starting point there is to, to really make it personal. Um, There's a quote in the story about stories from John Capecci, who's a communications consultant in Minneapolis, and he says that personalization, quote, makes abstract concepts like safety really concrete and specific, unquote. Those things all of a sudden, they transform from content in the manual into something that's real for us to see. 
Um, hearing about examples of this helped form the introduction to the magazine feature. Um, and if you've read it or will read it, spoiler alert, it, it calls the, the reader to imagine a hypothetical case that you're in a ladder safety training course and you've got the choice between one of two instructors. Now, which one is going to sound like it might be more appealing? The session in which you're given rote statistics and data from the start and you learn about ladder hazards and generalities? Or is it the one that begins by mentioning how a worker recalls playing with his young daughter the morning he was injured in a ladder accident? Again, it's that little something personal that can be a good starting spot. So, so Kevin, in addition to weaving in those personal elements and being specific, what other tips are there for safety professionals looking to improve uh, their storytelling skills? Well, Alan, the, uh, the first one is to realize that wanting to boost your storytelling skills is a good thing because people might not even think of it, but public speaking truly is part of the job when someone gets into safety. Um, Al Pyock, who's an EHS manager in Bartlett, Illinois, not far from our home office in, uh, in Itasca, he's got a lighthearted quote about the fact many safety pros likely prefer to walk naked down a public street rather than address a room full of people. But Al says that the best way to overcome that hang-up is simply to do it, to, to speak. So uh, I told myself that I wasn't going to use the stock phrase once upon a time in the magazine feature, but I will use a cliche here, and that's practice makes perfect. Um, you know, whether, whether you're telling a story during a toolbox talk in front of a dozen people or if you're giving a seminar at a conference, you just have to know your audience and, above all, practice. Um, a friend of the podcast, Richard Hawk, who you might remember from our first episode and Richard remains the, the lone five questions with guests that Alan Barry and I have interviewed when, when we're actually in the same room. But Richard says that you should practice your story several times before you tell one. Um, sometimes he'll, he'll practice when he's in the company of friends. Now, we spoke before the pandemic, so I'm sure Richard's uh, adhering to social distancing and not having these big hangouts. But it, it could be that or he may even just practice the story when he's at home. Um, and, and with that, as, as everyone can attest to a lot of things, you know, practicing is just going to help you feel more at ease and make it easier to find that right blend of description and emotion. So you're not sounding like you're simply reciting something that you memorized or it's when we're all back in high school and had to whatever, memorize a poem or something to that effect. Um, and, you know, not to get too far ahead of things and make everyone a, a seasoned storyteller. But again, you know, I did speak with several motivational speakers who, who do that circuit and, and go around doing this you know, dozens of times in a given year or more. But if you do enough of these speaking engagements or even just telling stories in these smaller settings, it's just going to allow you to take cues from the audience. Um, one of the, the motivational safety speakers I talked with, Kayla Rath, who is based in Texas, she said, really, as, as long as you're not staring at your shoelaces, you can look out to the audience and notice whether certain parts of the story either made people laugh or cry. And we certainly hope this is never the case, but maybe even made someone just look off into space. So as you're getting more comfortable, you're able to take these cues and adjust your timing and your pace if need be. Kevin, I'm curious about a safety professional who has something insightful to share, but might be reluctant to tell his or her story for whatever reason. What insight did you get about this from, from your sources? Well, uh, really, each each expert who spoke for this feature stressed that everyone has a story to tell. And I know we mentioned a lot, we all have newspaper backgrounds. I'm sure we've heard that phrase more more times than you can imagine. Um, but it did remind me really of one of the first times I heard that my, my high school newspaper moderator, Mr. Peterson, would say, you know, we should be able to crack open 
a buzz book. And if you're a millennial out there listening and a buzz book is an archaic old phone directory, but the, the idea would be, you'd be able to point to a student's name and be able to tell a story that's different from the story of the next student or one who's listed eight pages ahead. Um, it really is the same way with safety professionals. Um, I suppose the modern equivalent of finding someone's name in the buzz book is to call upon them during a meeting or a seminar. But again, many of the experts said it's important to first gauge whether an audience member doesn't want to be put on the spot. You can you can tell if they're kind of squirming or maybe they're maybe not leaning forward, but sort of noticeably attentive, going back to looking for those audience cues that mentioned a, a moment ago. Um, certainly, like we've said, one of the benefits of a good story is to draw people in and to create that connection, but people just may not be comfortable sharing it, especially in front of a large group. Um, so you just, again, have to sort of gauge what's going on. But another friend of the podcast, and that's our second guest, Tim Page Bodorf, he mentions in the story that he'll often find it effective to, when he's when he's giving a, a seminar, for instance, he'll, he'll tell his story and then he'll place audience members or attendees in the smaller groups after he shared that story. And from there, he'll be asking the groups just to sort of speak among themselves, talk about maybe a lesson learned, or Tim will give them some sort of a prompt. So then he's, he's moving about the room and listening. He'll ask these audience members to share their own stories in that more close-knit setting, and it'll get them talking and just sort of on the road to striking a chord and connecting their story with someone else. Um, another theme that people shared that, you know, not everyone, again, can give that big story in front of a large group, but they, they stress that those still can be meaningful, even if you're telling them in front of an audience of three or four. If it's, if it's making a difference with one person, it can still make a big difference overall. It can have that ripple effect. And really to that end, um, there were so many powerful bits of advice that these experts shared, but just feel it's appropriate to close with one from Eric Jaguer, who's another motivational safety speaker, and he's in New York. And I know if you've been to uh, our Congress and Expo, he's been there sometimes and this, again, has made these circuits um, of speaking and storytelling. But Eric just said something that, that goes back to the heart of, of storytelling and safety and one of the things we hope you learn from this piece in the magazine. But he says, if you learn something and you don't share it, it does no good to learn it. So if you learn something from something that happened to you, share it. That way, nobody else has to go through it. Well, that's certainly a powerful quote from Eric. And we thank you, Kevin, for sharing all the stories that made up this story with us. Um, and I'm sure folks will will really enjoy the, uh, the topic. Uh, for folks who want to learn more, uh, please check out our September print issue of Safety and Health Magazine, or you can always visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. If you're listening to this podcast, we're pretty sure you like staying safe on the job and keeping others safe as well. We're also pretty sure that you want to stay safe and healthy when you're away from work. And we have a great way to help you out. It's Family Safety and Health Magazine from the makers of the award-winning Safety and Health Magazine. Family Safety and Health has tips and advice on topics from the home to the roadway and from your local parks and recreation areas to your medicine cabinet. You can visit us at nsc.org wellness or call 800-621-7619 to learn how you can get a subscription for yourself, your coworkers, your friends, and your family. Remember, that is Family Safety and Health Magazine, brought to you by the team that brings you Safety and Health Magazine each and every month.
As the COVID-19 pandemic stretches into another month, we want to discuss a, a really important topic with workers and employers as folks continue to head back to their physical work locations, and that is mental health in the workplace amid COVID-19. So we welcome Dr. Marissa Levine, who is a public health professor at the University of South Florida in Tampa, where she also serves as the director of the Center for Leadership in Public Health Practice. Her previous work includes several different roles with the Virginia Department of Health, including more than four years as the state's health commissioner. Dr. Levine, thank you so much for joining us today here on The Safe Side for our Five Questions With segment. My pleasure. Such an important topic. Thank you for having me. We want to start with a first question for you. What we're going through, obviously, right now is unprecedented. And we wanted to ask, as a public health educator and a former state health official, what concerns do you have about how this pandemic may have already impacted our mental health and what impact it could have in the future for both workers and employers? I think it's a, a huge impact and we're only starting to feel the brunt. The way I like to think about it is that we already had a significant burden of mental health issues before the pandemic. On average, about one out of every five Americans had some mental health issue in a given year, and some one out of every 25 Americans had a serious mental health issue uh, during a given year. We also know that we were dealing with an addiction crisis, uh, particularly around opioid um, type uh, medications and drugs. And that was actually on the rise just before COVID hit. Uh, and in many localities, it's actually much worse now. We uh, also had a suicide issue, particularly among young people. It was the second leading cause of death in uh, people from 10 to 34 years of age. And I worry very much that um, that's only gotten worse. COVID itself has produced some direct and indirect uh, impacts. Some of those are related to having the disease itself, uh, just being stressed enough by the disease. But there are probably some neurologic complications from this disease, which we've learned really is a systemic disease, meaning that it attacks potentially every organ system in the body. And then all the indirect uh, impacts of having COVID yourself or suffering with a family member or close friend or a coworker, the fear and anxiety just of the disease itself or catching it, it uh, as I said, the impact on close uh, colleagues, family, friends. And another thing that we know a lot more about now is um, adverse childhood experiences. We really need to work hard to buffer our children from having COVID itself and all these uh, side effects, if you will, becoming an adverse childhood experience uh, and impacting growth and development of our children. And then finally, the mitigation-induced impacts are also a concern. We've seen huge disruptions in our economic well-being Many families, many individuals suffer serious financial trouble. And then the social aspects of it, the isolation, uh, is huge, which we are learning more and more as a critical factor in our well-being. We are social creatures. We need to be connected. And that's why I like to say we need to physically distance ourselves, but not socially isolate ourselves. So I like to use the term physical distancing better. All of those mean that we have uh, huge issues to deal with. There have been ramped up efforts to manage these. Uh, there's increased use of telehealth services for mental health, which is a good thing. Uh, 
Um, but it's really important now that people not feel alone. And I think that's something I know we'll talk more about. So one of the uh, constants during this pandemic uh, seems to be uncertainty. Um, we can't really see where we're headed. And, and that can obviously be unnerving. It, so how do we manage that uncertainty and, and use the fact that we're all experiencing similar things to find some support or uh, perhaps some solace? Yeah, you bring up a really important issue. As human beings, we really don't like uncertainty. Everything we do is to try to make things more certain. And one thing about pandemics is that we're in uncharted territory right now. Nobody has a playbook, so to speak. We can learn a little bit from uh, history, but we are literally making it up as we go and we have to learn together and adjust as we go forward. That's really concerning from a mental health point of view. So I think the first thing, uh, particularly for employers, for supervisors, for company owners, is to start by with checking yourself first. Uh, how are you doing? And how uh, do you demonstrate um, adaptability and managing through this? Because you being um, grounded, if you will, and um, comforting is really important for those around you. Um, and I think that um, employers also can gauge what's happening in the workplace uh, with your employees by uh, having opportunities to voice concerns, having dialogue. Even when there's a virtual workplace, it's really important to stay connected and then helping people connect to resources. You know, there's some really critical resources. Obviously, if there's an emergency, we still have our 911 system, but the National Alliance for Mental Health has a national hotline, 1-800-950-6264, and that's one way to help. There are local resources, obviously. Uh, Many communities have 211 as a resource to identify available um, social services. And then, as I mentioned, suicide is a concern. So National Suicide Hotline is also another resource, 1-800-273-8255. In the workplace, I think, though, it's also to make sure that your policies afford flexibility because uh, change is and uncertainty are difficult. But if you can have flexible policies, that really helps. And those policies can be crafted with uh, the employees to make sure that they're engaged in the process and that uh, there's buy-in and actually that you make better decisions in terms of what those policies are. I like to remind leaders that um, you set the tone. And so without minimizing the issues that are out there, you can take a positive approach. And there's great evidence that a positive mindset, um, kind of starting from our strengths, if you will, realizing what Uh, good things we bring to the issue, our own inner strength, if you will, and the fact that as a leader, you have a can-do spirit and you engage your employees in that can-do spirit, meaning we're going to make it through this. We just have to work together to figure it out um, and start from from our strength, from the foundation that we bring to this. All of those, I think, are really important, um, and it's not easy. I'm not saying there's an easy way. Uh, connecting in that way, in a real human way, allows us uh, to work better together and it helps people feel uh, engaged and not alone. And it's really important for our social well-being and ultimately our mental health. 
Doctor, you've talked about resources that discuss coping strategies, and one prominent resource you've mentioned and one you encourage folks to share with friends and family is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which is NAMI.org. What are some of the common coping strategies that can be helpful? You know, it's a great question, and uh, it's so easy to get caught up in all the craziness with COVID-19. We do need to stay up to speed. We do need to make sure we're getting reliable information and that we're adjusting our day-to-day as we learn how to live with COVID based on evidence, sound data, the science. But uh, an important coping mechanism that I think uh, leaders can role model is take a break from all the news and from all the craziness. Don't get sucked into this um, and understand when you're you yourself are overwhelmed by just all of the things that are going on. We've seen much of this become very political, so that makes it even more challenging. But I think taking that break is really important. And when you take that break, also take care of your body. Um, Being physically well impacts your mental health and obviously vice versa. But uh, leaders can really role model this. They can take time to unwind. I've done a number of uh, webinars virtually Um, And I make the point that right now we need to be there for each other. And that means being present in body, mind, and spirit. And we can even focus on that virtually. Some simple things maybe at the beginning of a meeting, whether you're in person or whether you're virtual, um, would be to stop and get everybody to take a deep breath. I know it sounds hokey, but deep breathing is kind of the essence of meditative practice. And it's there that way for a purpose because... You can't possibly take a deep breath, two or three, without actually focusing on the breathing. And by focusing on the breathing, that means you're here in the now um, and and you're present. So I think you can start meetings that way. You can have people put their devices aside. And what it does is it allows us to connect as human beings and meet our social needs, even if we're in a virtual space. And so connecting with others, I think, is important to stay connected. It's really easy to get isolated at this time. And then setting goals and priorities um, to make sure even that might just be for a day or for a session or a meeting is really good because it brings some certainty into the uncertainty you mentioned. Uh, And then uh, the last point I would make is um, make it a point to focus on facts. Uh, Every one of us can speculate. There there are doomsdayers. There are all kinds of things out there, but let's focus on the facts. And yes, you're allowed to have your opinion, but don't let that get in the way of the important connections that we have and the goal setting and the priority and the focus that we need during these uncertain times. I think doing all of that will help. Again, it's not easy. You have to be very intentional about it. But if you as a leader can role model that, not only will you be better off, but you'll be setting that kind of environment where you'll be productive and you'll be maintaining uh, to some degree the mental health needs of everybody in your group. So for people who are, you might go back to work here in the near future, or or perhaps even people who have gone back to work and and if they're concerned about a uh, colleague or coworker's mental health, uh, what are the signals or signs that they can uh, look for? Yeah, another really important issue. Uh, it's not a time to turn a blind eye and ignore. People are suffering and need help, and it happens in all places. Uh, you mentioned the National Alliance of Mental 
illness website. It's a great resource for you. I'll highlight a few things I think are relevant in the workforce for people to be aware of. And the one thing about the workforce uh, and the workplace is that we know each other. You know, I, I mentioned it's really important that we connect, but knowing each other as people um, allows us to understand who we are and then to be able to look for change because it's the change that um, really tells us if there may be a problem. So if you see a coworker who you know who's excessively worried or fearful, um, more so than whatever the situation requires, that's a concern that should make you think about the fact they may need some help uh, and, again, a reason to connect. Somebody who um, generally thinks very clearly and very uh, organized in their approach now becomes confused in their thinking, seems to have problem concentrating or learning, that's a warning sign. Uh, mood changes. You know, somebody who's been relatively steady in their moods now has significant um, highs or lows that uh, don't seem to match the situation. Uh, that would be a concern. And then prolonged or strong feelings of irritability or anger. Somebody who lashes out at you, who's normally uh, pretty calm and with whom you have a great relationship, uh, that would be a concern. Obviously, those things happen occasionally, but we're talking about uh, recurring situations like this. And then um, difficulties understanding or relating to other people, somebody who's been a good team worker, who no longer seems to be able to do that. Um, and then just generally an inability to carry out their daily activities or handle the normal stresses of work might imply that there's more going on here, perhaps uh, great issues at home, um, or just overall concerns related to the pandemic. Those are a few of the warning sites. There are many uh, signs, there are many others, um, but I think those are relevant to the workplace. And part of what I said about being present is that then allows you to be more aware. You're not just going things through things unconsciously, but you're actually gauging what's happening around you. And I think if you're doing work, virtual work, then having some way to check in with each other might give you some insights as to whether somebody's struggling or not. Um, so all of those things are important. It does lay additional burden on each of us, uh, but this is a really important time for all of us to do a part to manage through this pandemic and to help maintain the mental health that we need to get through this. When it comes to public health, Dr. Levine, you, you'd like to mention a quote from former Surgeon General C. Everett Koop um, about public health. Could you share that with our audience and discuss what it means to you, especially at a time like this? Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, and I'm a family doctor by training. I spent many years in practice. Uh, and then I got very involved in the community and ultimately uh, received training in public health and, and became part of the governmental public health system, where I learned that um, nothing we do in public health can be done alone. Everything is in partnership and everybody has a role. So uh, many years ago, when I saw this quote from um, the former Surgeon General C. Everett Koop, uh, where he was quoted as saying that healthcare may be everybody's business some of the time, but public health is everybody's business all of the time. That really resonated with me because it was true to what I was seeing in my work in public health. Um, and it's probably, hopefully, more clear than ever to everybody in, a, in the middle of this pandemic that our individual actions affect one another. We now have a disease that can be spread from people who don't have any symptoms yet 
Um, and that means that it's really hard to know who's out and about who might be carrying the virus. Uh, this is what's made this incredibly complex. But it also emphasizes that um, we each can do something to minimize transmission. We might be a carrier. So that means we can assure we're physically distanced from others adequately. And if not, that we have a face covering, which uh, there's growing evidence is impactful in a positive way. Uh, and then continue our sanitary practices with good hand washing, for example. Uh, so everybody has a job. And to see Everett's quote, uh, it's everybody's business now. And in fact, uh, if we don't do that, then we run the risk of more economic disruptions and much more difficulty, certainly more mental health issues uh, and um, a much more prolonged situation. We don't know when we're going to have a vaccine or effective preventive treatments. Uh, I hope it's sooner rather than later, but we just don't know. So right now we have to learn how to live with COVID and that means we all have to do our part. I think my hat's off to uh, leaders in organizations who've uh, done tremendous work to re-engineer their place, to take safety uh, first and to uh, tailor that to the unique needs of a pandemic. Uh, this will help us because um, as we change the workplace to be more infection resistant, so to speak, or transmiss, tra infection transmission resistant, uh, it'll bode us well for future issues. We don't know what flu season, for example, will look like in the face of COVID uh, this coming fall and winter. But if we learn successfully how to live with COVID, then that will help us get through flu and then whatever else happens after that. That's why I think public health is everybody's business. And I would just ask everybody in leadership positions to just rethink how they do their work uh, from the perspective of how could we better prevent and protect the public's health and well-being and, and really create situations and contexts in which everybody can maximize their health and well-being. Um, and it's not just physical health, it's mental health, social health, and our economic health. If we take that holistic view, then we live up to the words of C. Everett Koop. We'll make better decisions and we'll be much more unified as communities and a country that will allow us to be effective in the future. Well, Dr. Levine, we truly appreciate all your insights on this topic and, and we can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, thank you for joining us on The Safe Side. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Doctor. Stay safe and be well. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, guys, we're hitting the home stretch of our September episode, which we taped in August. And that means that, yeah, this year is about two-thirds over. We've reached that confluence of summer and fall. Um, usually, this time of year would bring fairs and festivals to your neighboring county, community, school, church, really just about anywhere that has access to fairgrounds or Ferris wheels. But as we've discussed, and, and all of you know, these aren't ordinary times. So the the county fair or the school picnic or what have you, those are on hold for a while. So arguably, really, the, the fairest thing of all, so to speak, about these gatherings is the food. Um, as Alan said, uh, I won't try to do his impression of delicious, but it, it resonates with me. It was good. <laughs> For this month's pop quiz, though, we're uh, we're going to try not to drool while discussing the fair fair. That's F A I R F A R E that we miss the most. When we solidified this topic uh, the other day, I uh, I really thought I was going to go with the pastry and talk about the 
the difference between a funnel cake and an elephant ear, but I, I gave it a little more, more thought and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go with the starch and it's those, those homemade potato chips that you'll see. And, um, I'm not not trying to sound like the the Illinois Bureau of Tourism because I know I mentioned another Illinois city in the in the deep dive, but there's a festival in Sycamore, Illinois, and I recall going a few years ago with my wife, and they they peel the potatoes and fry them in front of you, and it's just a sight to behold, and it's it's more than a generous portion. They they fill this this plate with them, and it's just it's it's much too much, but we we enjoyed it just the same, and just I I remember the. The presentation of it, it was, you know, it's blossoming out. And it reminded you of the blooming onion at an Outback Steakhouse, or I know a lot of restaurants have an equivalent. But it just was, you're looking at them, and they're using just a couple regular potatoes you'd get from the grocery store. But man, they they really poof them out, and they they make quite the dish. So, uh, Barry, how about you? Well, I, I'm a, I would say I'm a loyalist to to one fair food in particular, and that is the Great American Corn Dog. Um, it, I, I'm pretty simple when it comes to my corn dogs, especially at the fair. It doesn't need to be a foot long corn dog. It doesn't need to be wrapped in bacon or covered in cheese or anything. I'll take the regular corn dog with mustard. Uh, no ketchup for me. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and, and if we want to, to get into beverages, um, I, I am a huge fan of the lemonade shakeup at any county fair. Uh, you know, here in Illinois, uh, I worked in central Illinois for five years and there's a, a good, number of county fairs which are which are pretty fun and those are really bring the community together so for me it's definitely the corn dog for alan how about you um yeah i mean you stole pretty much stole my thunder on both <laughs> counts uh yeah i'm the same way we're the same mind in terms of corn dogs and especially with mustard um and the lemon shakeups those are both great i obviously Kevin mentioned the funnel cakes and that's, that's, you know, obviously number one, I think on my list, especially after corn dogs and you got to have more fried food on top of the other fried food. So, um, but I did have a question. Did you guys, uh, when you were in school, did you get the day off or uh, the fair? No, you didn't. We might've got a half day. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. We used to, the, the city schools in Memphis would get one day and the county schools would get uh, another day the next week. So I just thought that was very, wow. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, you never went on that day because that was always crowded. But yeah. the admission to the fairgrounds in Memphis also gave you um, admission to a theme park, the now defunct Liberty Land. But I went back when it was funked. Um, and you got to go on the Zip and Pippin, which was Elvis's favorite ride. Um, <laughs> I think they've since rebuilt it in Pennsylvania somewhere. I think somebody it was it was originally it was the oldest wooden roller coaster in America at one point. It was I think nineteen fourteen sometime around World War One. So it was wow. really interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I so will yeah, say that, that was my fair experience. So yeah, we always we always went at least once a year. Um, and adjacent to the fairgrounds was a uh, Tim McCarver Stadium. Nice. Which was the home of the Memphis Chick, which is the Double A Southern League club. So yeah, the fairgrounds had a whole whole bunch um, of things going on. The fairgrounds was near the Mid South Coliseum in Memphis, and now they've moved it all out to the to the east in, in Shelby Farm. Gotcha. So I believe that's the last I'd heard of it. So they don't no longer have it in the central part of the city. Uh, but I, yeah, I thought I'd pose that question: whether or not you got the, <laughs> the day off. Well, I will say this, Alan, I, I, you know, taking off on Kevin's earlier point about pastries, I will stand up for the elephant ear over the funnel cake. 
That's where I come from. I am elf, team elephant ear more than team funnel cake. Where do you guys stand? I'm also team funnel cake. I um, it it was born of these. Uh, I mentioned the the school picnic. We had a school picnic and then uh, a, a parish homecoming, and they both doubled down on the funnel cake. Um, just the powdered with or without powdered sugar. Right? It's it's pretty darn good. Yeah, um, I don't have too much experience with elephant ears. Only maybe like once or twice. Yeah, it's usually been, you know, all they had were really funnel cakes, I guess, back where, <laughs> I don't know if it's a regional thing or. I was going yeah. to ask the same because it, it doesn't seem like it wasn't until I moved east of the Mississippi that I heard about the elephant ear. Yeah, the elephant ear at the Illinois State Fair, I will say, is is a, a delight to behold. I mean, if it's sweet and it's fried, I mean, how, how can yes. you go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for, for keeping that discussion going. I know we could continue with it, but we really want to hear now from you, our listeners. Uh, let us know what's your favorite fair food that you've been missing this summer. And please do that by emailing us at safehealth@nsc.org or by using the hashtag SafesidePopQuiz on social media. We'll compile some of our favorite responses and read them during an upcoming episode. Um, so with that, we'll, we'll backtrack a little bit. You remember... Uh, you loyal listeners that we talked in a recent episode with Abby Ferry. And at the end of the pop quiz, um, we had asked about favorite superheroes and um, wanted just to mention the funniest answer we received. And that was, uh, if you put on your way back machine, we uh, received the response of super chicken, the animated cartoon, which first debuted in 1967. And uh, this person may or may not have also shared with us the, the theme for that, but we don't have that <laughs> recorded. So We'll, we'll move on. Um, another one we really liked um, was from our friend Tim Page Bodorf on LinkedIn. He also wrote, I'm a scientist when I have to be, but I have big calves. I am the Hulk. <laughs> so uh, everyone, we, we appreciate you not only listening, but really we want to amp up this interact, interactive part of it. So please uh, share with us your, your pop quiz answers and we'll, we'll love to see them and love to share them on, uh, on an upcoming episode. So. Keep them coming. We want to say thanks to everyone out there for spending some time with us today. And remember, if you want to keep your employees, your colleagues, and your family members safe, we have just a publication for you, Family Safety and Health. Each issue is packed with helpful tips that will keep families safe at home and in the community, along with informational articles about your health. To get a free copy or learn more, visit nsc.org wellness or subscribe by calling 800-621-7619. In the meantime, feel free to tell a fellow safety pro about this podcast. If you'd like to share some feedback, email us at safehealth at nsc.org. To find stories such as the storytelling feature and past articles such as Barry's soft skills article we discussed last episode and all the latest news about safety and health, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. We'd like to thank our colleague and sound guru, Chelsea Yang. Original music for this podcast was provided by Steve Maslin. On behalf of our team at Safety and Health Magazine, we hope you and your friends and family are all safe and healthy amid the COVID-19 crisis. We'll be back next month with another episode to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. Until then, please stay on the safe side.